This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 42, The Julio-Claudian Dynasty. Augustus died in his bed at the age of 77 in the year 14 CE. Augustus had done a good job as the first ever Roman Emperor. His instatement into the role back in 27 BCE had been deemed necessary to bring stability to a dysfunctional Republic nation where everyone was trying to clamber over their peers to grab their right of control. With an Emperor there was absolutely no doubt about who was in control. One of the drawbacks regarding emperors was that there was a vacuum to fill when that emperor died. Augustus had brought a period of relative peace to Rome, so now Rome was looking for a new emperor, when what actually they needed was a new Augustus. Naturally, it would seem reasonable that a power struggle would ensue at the death of the emperor. But the people of Rome were enjoying this new Pax Romana, a period of peace, so it appears that nobody saw fit to challenge Augustus's choice of successor. Augustus's choice was a man called Tiberius. We spoke of Tiberius in episode 38 when describing the reign of Augustus. Tiberius was highly regarded by the emperor Augustus and many years before he was obliged to marry Augustus's daughter, despite apparently not wanting to divorce his previous wife, who he was in love with. Tiberius was so disappointed with Emperor Augustus's daughter that he fled Rome. However, Augustus eventually recalled him for the purpose of being involved in the Roman campaigns in Germania and Pannonia. Tiberius was born in 42 BCE, two years after the death of Caesar and in the midst of a civil war. His mother was a woman called Livia Drusilla and Livia would marry Augustus in 38 BCE which effectively made Tiberius his stepson and this would explain the lifelong connection between Augustus and Tiberius. Tiberius was described as an unhappy emperor. It is said that Augustus forced him to divorce his first wife, which would have undoubtedly have caused resentment. But it is also said that Livia was a woman who had great aspirations for her son, Tiberius. So despite being a highly respected military commander, it does seem that Tiberius lived a life according to other people's wills, as opposed to his own. And it might be this that made him bitter and twisted in later life. Tiberius was officially adopted by Augustus after the mysterious deaths of both his grandsons and it has been suggested that Livia could have had a hand in it in order to promote her son up the pecking order. This official adoption was something that Augustus himself went through when Julius Caesar died so it had become part of the Roman practice when selecting a successor. When Augustus died Tiberius became 
the new Roman Emperor. He was in his 50s by now and had had a successful and illustrious military career. Although the Roman Empire appeared to remain in good shape after the death of Augustus, it soon became clear that Tiberius didn't have the same political charisma as Augustus and didn't have the same comfortable relationship with the Senate that Augustus seemed to enjoy. Last week, we mentioned that Augustus had created a Praetorian Guard as a personal bodyguard for himself, but also they were commissioned to protect all family members of the Roman royal family. Previously, they simply protected selected members of the Roman Senate. During the reign of Augustus, there were between four and 5,000 members, but they were led by two men called prefects. On the accession of Tiberius, one of the prefects was a man called Sejanus, which is familiarly heard as Sejanus. And as a man who would have had to have worked closely to the emperor, he would have inevitably become swept up in the politics of the moment. Tiberius So we understand Tiberius's background and why he became the successor to Augustus. Even though he was in his 50s, he was now the second Roman Emperor. It may have been down to some underhanded tactics by his mother Livia, who may have had a hand in bumping off the competition. But despite Tiberius being at an advanced age, Livia was still alive and kicking. It seems that most parties were ready for Tiberius to take over from Augustus, including the Praetorian Guard, who were prepared to look after the new emperor. The only other living rival to Tiberius was Agrippa Postumus, who was possibly not diplomatic material due to his character, and although he had been banished from Rome in 6 BCE, he was promptly murdered by his own guards on the death of Augustus. Surely no pure coincidence. Although Tiberius was a new emperor, he would be sensible to prepare a successor. So he would pick the very popular general Germanicus. Germanicus was the nephew of Tiberius, but in Roman tradition Tiberius would adopt him as his own son as Augustus had done with Tiberius and Julius Caesar had done with Augustus. Germanicus was a popular warrior, although possibly a little bit too ambitious in his intentions. Rome as an empire had made the conscious decision to regulate its expansion in favour of consolidating its gains, and it may have been that this was too sensible for Germanicus's liking. Germanicus was successful on campaign in northern Europe and was subsequently recalled to Rome to be invited to take consular duties and command of the Roman provinces of the east. Germanicus successfully annexed Cappadocia and ensured the loyalty of the king of Armenia, which was an extremely important buffer state between Rome and Parthia. The Parthians would have loved to ensure the loyalty of Armenia for themselves during the tense relationship between the mighty empires of Rome and Parthia. It may have been that the Roman governor of Syria, a man called Gnaeus Calpurnius Piso, 
became upset over the successes of Germanicus and it is possible that he arranged to have Germanicus poisoned in the year 19. Maybe Germanicus was becoming far too popular. With rumour of Tiberius feeling jealousy towards Germanicus's popularity and success overshadowing his own, preventing Germanicus from winning new land in northern Europe and claims that he had illegally travelled to Egypt, could it be that Tiberius was indifferent about Germanicus being murdered? There's not much to suggest that Tiberius was of a character that showed any kind of interest in being a popular statesman, but he did have a son that was his direct bloodline, and he was called Drusus. So it would make more sense that if Tiberius did have a hand in Germanicus's murder, it would be more likely to do with the future success of Drusus in his mind than any kind of jealousy of his popularity. So despite the fact that Rome had considerably reformed upon the promotion of Augustus way back in 27 BCE in something that was designed to bring peace and stability within the Roman Republic, it still appears that being in a prominent position in Rome came with its dangers as it had done for prominent senators beforehand. If you were in the line to become a successor to the current emperor, then you could be somewhat confident that your dynastic rivals would likely prefer you to be dead. This is probably why Augustus felt it sensible to promote the Praetorian Guard to an official role of the bodyguards to the royal family. If it was true that Tiberius's main motivation to his actions was to secure the future success of his own son Drusus, then it may go some way towards explaining some of the actions of Tiberius in his later years as emperor. Drusus had actually campaigned alongside one of the prefects of the Praetorian Guard, Sianus, who we briefly mentioned earlier. It appears that relations became tense between Drusus and Sianus after the death of Germanicus, and this could be because Sianus had ambitions of his own to ascend to a position of power in Rome, maybe even believing that he could become the emperor himself. Sianus is portrayed as a very wily character, and this could be thanks to the writings of a man who was alive a couple of generations after this period, namely Tacitus. Tacitus is a highly respected Roman historian who very much had an opinion of the actions of Sianus during this period. It was in the year 23 that the emperor's son Drusus died from natural causes but Tacitus believed that Sianus had a hand in his death. Often poison was the chosen murder weapon during this period because it could be construed that the victim died of natural causes. The fact that Tacitus believed that Sianus was motivated to and capable of killing Drusus may have been because of what happened next. With the Praetorian Guard now having privileges within Rome, Sianus was now a man of high standing and influence and he would be there when Tiberius' son Drusus died. Sianus would have had a permanent camp of the Praetorian Guard built within the city walls of Rome in an unprecedented act. Drusus's death likely broke Tiberius's heart and possibly took away his energy for his duties as Emperor of Rome, 
but that was okay because Sienna certainly had the energy and he would now move closer to Tiberius, effectively becoming his personal confidant and chief advisor. It seems that Tiberius never suspected Sianus as having a hand in his son's murder. Sianus had no dynastic right to make a claim to be the Roman Emperor. Tiberius would turn to the children of the deceased commander Germanicus by his wife Vipsania Agrippina who was still alive. Tiberius adopted two of her sons after the death of his own son. So Sianus then requested to marry Livila who was the wife of the deceased emperor's son Drusus. With Livila being Tiberius's niece this would create a dynastic link for Sianus to the royal family. However this also raises suspicions that Livila may have had a hand in the murder of Drusus. Tiberius refused to allow it. However with Tiberius on the cusp of his 70th birthday he no longer had the energy or the desire for everyday duties of being the Roman Emperor and so he chose to live in a peaceful retreat on the island of Capri from the year 27 and left Sianus to carry out the everyday duties. If we were being very cynical we could even suppose that Sianus coerced Tiberius to do so so that he could assume the position of power that he craved. It seems that when Sianus did have this position of authority within Rome he chose to target Vipsania Agrippina and her children. Of course her children were the ones that Tiberius had adopted with a view to the succession. This would mean that Sianus could be justified in viewing them as his rivals to his ultimate glory of ruling Rome and so he would need to find a way to eliminate them. Sianus had now increased the size of the Praetorian Guard to over 10,000 members so it was a formidable force capable of taking on Roman legions. Sianus would have Agrippina put under house arrest and then exiled charged with treason and sexual misconduct. Her two sons the adopted children of Tiberius would soon follow and so Sianus's true intentions started to become obvious. It would be Lavila's mother who would write to Tiberius to warn him that Sianus's intention was to murder him and so Tiberius would return to Rome. Sianus was summoned to the Senate and accused of intention to murder the Emperor and seize power. He was found guilty and brutally physically assaulted by an angry mob. And this was the end of Sianus. It is very intriguing to note that despite the execution of Sianus, this did not secure the release of Agrippina and her children, although one of the children had already died in captivity by this time. It's curious that they were not released and this raised suspicions that Tiberius had decided that he wanted another of Agrippina's sons called Caligula to be his successor instead. Therefore Agrippina and her other remaining son were left to die in captivity, paving the way 
for Caligula to be adopted by Tiberius and become the heir to the throne. Caligula Tiberius died in the year 37 at the advanced age of 77 on his island retreat on Capri and the Roman public seemed glad to see the back of him. Rome remained healthy during his rule but Tiberius was no natural leader like his predecessor Augustus and the governing of the empire was quite frankly a shambles with the tyrannical Sejanus almost stealing control of the empire while the emperor was seemingly disinterested and constantly changing his loyalties because he had absolutely no idea who he could trust. Augustus would have probably taken control of the situation himself and not left so much to chance. Caligula was only 24 years of age when he ascended to become the Roman Emperor. Caligula may have become close to Tiberius in Capri before the death of Sianus and it could be the fact that Tiberius favoured him that condemned Tiberius's existing heirs, Caligula's older brothers. Caligula was not the only heir as Tiberius had also named his own grandson, Gemellus, to also be an heir. However, Caligula may have come under the influence of a new prefect of the Praetorian Guard called Macro, and some have even suggested that Caligula, assisted by Macro, may have hastened Tiberius' death in order to seize Roman power as quickly as they dared to. Nevertheless, Caligula's ascent was a time of great excitement for the Roman people as they had been tired of the previous regime and yearned for a brighter society which Caligula initially tried his best to deliver by releasing political prisoners and staging lavish events for the population to enjoy. However, Caligula fell ill during his first year of his reign and this is cited as a catalyst for a change in his attitude. When he recovered, he decided to target those who he believed were a direct threat to his position, possibly because he may have believed that his illness was caused rather than natural. First to be murdered was the man who was the prime candidate to displace Caligula, the man who was declared a co-heir alongside Caligula, and Tiberius's grandson, Gemellus. Soon after, the Praetorian prefect and a man who was allied with Caligula in his quest to become emperor, namely Macro, was forced into suicide by Caligula, maybe due to switching his allegiance to Gemellus while Caligula was ill. Many others would suffer a similar fate. If Tiberius was guilty of distrust, then Caligula appeared to be taking his own distrusts to a higher level. It could be the case that Caligula's illness had brought on some kind of mental deficiency as we hear stories of him deciding that his horse should be considered as the next Roman consul or that he marched an entire army up to the northern coasts of European mainland, but rather than cross the English Channel to invade Britannia, the army were told to collect seashells instead. 
However, this could also be some clever work by future historians such as Suetonius to paint Caligula as a senile emperor to justify their dislike of him. Caligula was more evidently prone to megalomania with statues portraying him dressed up in clothes of the gods such as Mars. He was infamous for his incestuous affairs with his sisters. His attitude in the Senate lacked the same humility of his predecessors Augustus and Tiberius. The promising young and popular emperor was soon proving to be very unpopular. His friend, the Roman vassal king of Judea, King Herod Agrippa, had to write a letter to Caligula to deter him from displaying his own image within the Holy of Holies of the temple in Jerusalem for fear of sparking a religious outrage. To allow Caligula to continue to reign was dangerous and unacceptable and so the inevitable happened when a tribune to the Praetorian Guard led an angry mob to murder Caligula during the Palatine Games in the year 41. His murder has been likened to the manner in which Julius Caesar was murdered in the Roman Senate during the previous century, being stabbed multiple times by multiple assassins. The Roman Senate was starting to believe that this new Roman experiment of having an emperor was not working. And although the years under Augustus had been somewhat free of controversy, the same could not be said for the years under Tiberius and Caligula. Some members of the Senate would be promoting the return of a republican government. Despite the fact that the Praetorian Guard had been established as official bodyguards to the royal family, Roman emperors would also commission the protection of a Germanic bodyguard unit called Numerus Batavorum. Without an emperor, the Numerus Batavorum would have little purpose, so they pushed for Caligula's uncle to be proclaimed emperor. His name was Claudius. He was around 50 years of age and likely suffered from cerebral palsy, which in the Roman world was likely seen as a major deficiency that would allow Claudius to be an inconsequential emperor to be easily manipulated. Claudius Despite quite possibly facing physical handicaps, it appears that Claudius did bring some energy into the duty of being emperor. Caligula had shown a great degree of arrogance while in the company of the Roman Senate, so it was a relief to the Senate to have a more humble man in charge of the empire once again, even if many of them did not appreciate the presence of an emperor at all. Those senators with personal ambitions would not have appreciated being regulated by an emperor. But the emperor existed because the Roman Senate could not be trusted to regulate itself. And this is why Claudius was quickly instated after Caligula's murder. Claudius would then set about reforming the administration of the empire. 
where senators had themselves been previously responsible for most aspects of overseeing administration, Claudius would start utilising the services of freedmen, who were not of Roman blood, but came from other parts of the empire, such as the Greek provinces. These freedmen had no senatorial ties, so they had no political motivations to their behaviour. Claudius had made a definite attempt to downgrade the power of the senators, which would not necessarily make his relationship with them smooth. While Caligula before him had claimed a victory over Britannia without even setting foot on British soil, Claudius would actually go and do it. Claudius had a turbulent relationship with the Senate, but he had made it his business to have a good relationship with his army. So despite his physical weaknesses, meaning that he had no direct military background, he would inspire his army to perform well, and this was demonstrated when they crossed the English Channel in the year 43 and pressed on over the River Thames to take the important and influential city of Camelodunum, which is the modern city of Colchester in England. Even though Claudius's conquest of southern Britannia is perhaps his most remembered imperial success, we should also note that he successfully annexed the kingdom of Judea on the death of King Herod Agrippa, the man who prevented Caligula from personalising the temple in Jerusalem. Caligula had assassinated King Ptolemy of Mauritania, a grandson of Queen Cleopatra VII of Egypt. So Claudius provided a political solution by successfully annexing Mauritania into the Roman Empire as well. Under Claudius, the territory of the Roman Empire was larger than ever, despite Augustus and Tiberius actively taking a passive attitude to frontier expansion. Just about every Mediterranean coastline, whether European or African, was now fully controlled by Rome. He did all this without antagonising the Germans or the Parthians, who had always been quite a match for the Romans in the past. Claudius also showed activity within civil administration, making revisions to the judicial system and hosting public games to keep the Romans in good spirits. He would improve the nature of imports such as grain and major improvements made at the harbour town of Ostia where the Tiber River entered the Tyrrhenian Sea. Ostia had always received attention from the rulers of Rome, but particular credit is afforded to Claudius. As an emperor, Claudius was very dutiful and loyal to the Roman Empire. He did not wane to the wishes of the Senate, and the Senate disliked him for it. If the Praetorian Guard believed that not allowing the Senate to return Rome to a republican constitution by installing a weak and easy-to-influence emperor in Claudius, then they were mistaken. Claudius appeared to be very clear-minded about the direction that the empire should go in and the role that he would play in that process. Claudius was determined but not egotistical. Claudius's wife, Messalina, 
was not particularly loyal to him. She had a promiscuous reputation and grew close to the senator named Silius. Messalina would go through with a marriage ceremony with Silius while Claudius was in Ostia and despite being married to Claudius. When Claudius heard of this, it became clear in his mind that Messalina may have been plotting against him and so he would have both Messalina and the senator Silius executed. Claudius then chose to marry the sister of the previous emperor Caligula, namely Agrippina the Younger, to distinguish her from her mother who was the Agrippina who was sent into exile by the Praetorian prefect Sulianus during the rule of the second emperor Tiberius. Agrippina already had a son from a previous marriage who Claudius would adopt and his name was Nero. Agrippina was yet another prominent royal woman who had her own ambitions and she would have been aware that despite Claudius adopting his great-nephew Nero, that Nero would still have a dynastic rival in Claudius's own son by his deceased wife Messalina, his name being Britannicus. It could have been that Agrippina and Nero were a key part in orchestrating the downfall of Claudius. Claudius and Agrippina were not particularly close during Claudius's final months, and it appears that Claudius had started giving more regard to Britannicus as a successor, as Britannicus was approaching his teenage years. However, this is pure speculation. Claudius may have been poisoned, and he also may not have been. He may have died of natural causes. However, such is the nature of Rome and the leadership that we have seen all too often that people are getting poisoned. So with every royal death, the possibility of murder is always at the front of our minds when assessing the cause. Claudius was always in poor health and he was all of 63 years old when he died in October 54. Nero would claim the imperial throne and Britannicus died on the eve of his 14th birthday in February 55, just four months after his father's death, leaving Nero clear to rule without challenge. If we could suggest that Claudius's death was not suspicious, certainly Britannicus's death has to be regarded as very fishy indeed. Nero Initially Nero as a 17 year old would rule with the hands-on assistance of his mother Agrippina the Younger and they would have the support of the Praetorian Guard. Particular senators would encourage Nero to act independently from his mother and he decided to work more closely with the Senate which his great uncle Claudius had decided to turn his back on. If you remember, Claudius chose to utilise freedmen for the administrative tasks, but the Senate would coerce Nero to stop doing this with claims of corruption. Claudius had also held secret trials without the input of the Senate, and this also stopped. Nero's rule 
was quite drama-free initially. Where Claudius had ordered the execution of some individuals within the Senate, this all stopped after Nero had established his own control. Accounts suggest that Nero was a cultured and warm-hearted ruler in his early years. Before we paint a picture of Nero being a good man, it seems clear that due to his young age, the people around him were actually trying to use him as a puppet for their own agendas. His mother, Agrippina, was doing a lot of the heavy lifting initially before Nero would be more influenced by two particular men, the Praetorian prefect, Burrus, and the Roman philosopher, Seneca. So despite Nero displaying admirable human qualities, it does appear that he was being influenced by others when it came to major affairs of state. It could have been those external influences that turned Nero against his own mother, Agrippina. Although it is said that Agrippina was very upset when Nero chose to have an affair behind his own wife's back. The fact that Nero is reported to have ordered the assassination of his own mother is seen as a vital turning point in the assessment of Nero's character in general by historians. It was unthinkable that an emperor would order the death of his own mother as there was always a high degree of sanctity about the life of a mother. But there were also those who congratulated Nero on his action, deeming it to be necessary as Agrippina was rumoured to be plotting against him. Nero was certainly demonstrating signs of his extreme vanity now as a man in his twenties, insisting upon public displays of singing and playing the lyre and first-hand chariot racing. However, we may need to look into some of the stories of Nero during this period with a pinch of salt because his character became resented by many who would have only been too happy to spread bad stories about him. It seems that Nero had a strong desire to be the centre of attention and everyone else was a competitor against him for his own fame and adulation. Burrus retired from the Praetorian Guard and Seneca felt that Nero was too far gone to be able to influence him anymore. Some say that Nero regarded himself as untouchable and able to do as he wished. He executed his own wife in the year 62 as it seemed that he'd fallen for another woman called Poppea Sabina. But then according to Tacitus, Nero killed Poppea three years later with a kick to the belly during an outburst of rage. On the morning of the 19th of June in the year 64, a fire broke out within the shops around the Circus Maximus where great chariot racing events would take place. The fire spread throughout the city and destroyed a significant amount of buildings. Some claim that Nero was happily plucking his lyre while Rome was ablaze. However, Nero would set about rebuilding Rome in the aftermath and he would blame the fire of Rome on Christians instead. 
So vast was the expanse and population of Rome, it would be reasonable to assume that there was a diverse amount of minor religious cults in existence within the empire and even the city itself. The Christians were but one of them. Nero would persecute the Christians in Rome as a consequence of their supposed instigation of this great fire. Still, some would suggest that Nero was just trying to find a scapegoat to cover his own guilt. Nero would construct a significant palace complex for himself at great expense to the Roman treasury and Nero would become infamous in Christian legend as the Antichrist for his brutal behaviour towards them. In order to increase the money in the treasury, Nero would raise taxes in places such as Judea which provoked a Jewish rebellion. Rebellions were not uncommon during the reign of Nero. One of the more well-known instances was when King Prasutagus of the Iceni tribe in Britannia died and the Romans tried to annex his lands, much to the chagrin of his wife, Boudicca, who launched a vicious rebellion which has immortalised her in British folklore. Ultimately, she was unsuccessful, but she almost drove the Romans out of Britain. Rome would have its issues with Parthia as well during this period, with both empires desperately trying to put their own client king on the Armenian throne, which was an important buffer state between the two. The Parthians certainly came out of this particular set of exchanges the better. All of these things only served to exhaust the Roman treasury further, and Rome was really feeling the strain of Nero's rule. As the Senate grew increasingly hostile towards Nero, Nero would reciprocate this by ordering the execution of a number of senators, accusing them of conspiring to assassinate him. This would only serve to add more fuel to the fire. Further revolts flared up in Gaul, followed by African provinces and Hispania, maybe due to increased taxation and a general feeling of rebellion against Nero himself. Nero had completely lost the confidence of the Senate and the Praetorian Guard. They would pledge their allegiance to a Roman governor of Hispania who was a man called Galba. Nero had managed to get himself into a position where he had absolutely no meaningful allies. Some texts state that he committed suicide, but there are also those that say he fled to Greece, where he had spent a significant amount of time towards the end of his reign. He then may have been captured and executed. Rome really never forgave Nero for his actions and as such his legacy is particularly bad. He has become the iconic bad emperor. But he certainly wasn't the only bad emperor and he may not have even been the worst. But his reign left Rome in a very unstable position thanks to his irresponsible management of the treasury and his ignorance of foreign affairs 
causing unnecessary expense with all of the money being spent on military necessities. The year was now 68 and Rome was in danger of fragmenting. And that's where we're going to leave it this week. So we've covered pretty much the entire Julio-Claudian dynasty there in that episode. And it was a bit of a long one. And whenever I have a long one, I always mention that it's been a bit of a long one as if I'm apologising. As if um, I am, you know, perhaps charging you for the time that I spend over 30 minutes. But of course I'm not. And uh, hopefully... It uh, was still enjoyable and the fact that there was 10 minutes extra maybe we can consider to be a little bit of a bonus. Now I've been having all sorts of trouble. I recorded episode 41 last week and then found that my laptop decided that it wanted to die on me. So I was fortunate enough to be able to rescue the situation a little bit so that I could at least publish what I'd recorded. And then over the course of this week Lo and behold, my laptop died again, so I'm using a backup uh, laptop. And fortunately, somehow or other, I've been able to recover all the little bits of music and jingles. But uh, it's far from ideal, and um, I'm just lucky that I've been able to keep going seamlessly as if nothing's gone wrong. But of course, between you and I, yes, it's all gone wrong this week. It actually gave me a bit of an excuse to move my... um, my recording setup around a little bit so I'm hoping maybe that the sound quality might be a little bit better but I'm sure that you'll be getting in touch with me and letting me know if you think the sound quality has improved so um, don't hesitate let me know always write me a message always feedback I really really do appreciate it and I enjoy writing back to you as well so if you send me a message uh, even if it's about the content of the podcast Um, I'd love to hear from you and I can't wait to write back to you. Now talking about writing in, I'm also very interested in your opinion. Um, A discussion has been fired up by Eric G. Young, who's a good friend of the podcast, who's asked the question, which was the more significant naval battle of the ancient classical world, Actium or Salamis and why now actium was the one where octavian took on mark antony and cleopatra uh in the ambration gulf just on the west coast of greece uh, or the or the balkan peninsula and uh salamis was uh, some years before that during um the second peloponnesian invasion um by the persians by the achaemenid persians and um, it was a real uh, battle um, that was uh, could be described as an unlikely victory for the combined forces of the Greek polis against the Persians. And um, I um, I stated my answer and my reasons for it on the on the discussion forum, which you can access through the History of the World Podcast dot com website. Just click on the interact page, and you'll find. The discussion forum link there if you click through you'll be able to click on this very question 
which was more significant, Salamis or Actium? You'll find my answer there. I, I said it was Salamis, and, and I gave a number of reasons for it. But Eric G. Young has come back to me, and he said, well, he said, I think you should think twice about that, Chris, my friend. Uh, he's given a very, very um, interesting argument to state that it was Actium that was actually the more significant one. And so if you have an opinion or you'd like to read mine and Eric's opinions um, and uh, make a comment of your own, uh, please, please do. We really do want to hear from you. And there's nothing that we love more than just discussing history. And um, what a fantastic question. It really made me sit down and think for a while and, and before I gave my opinion. And the, the beauty of it is there's no right or wrong answer. It's really just pure speculation and you will have an opinion just like myself and just like Eric and we want to hear it. So please do join in. Now, Eric G. Young is one of our very highly valued members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Those people who have contributed towards the upkeep of the podcast and uh, you too can become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Uh, just by going to the History of the World podcast.com website, clicking on the Patreon link and signing up to make a monthly donation for as little as $1 per month. And there are associated rewards for those of you who reach particular thresholds in your lifetime contributions. And um, those people who have signed up, they become lifelong members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And this week they include Michael Weinberg, Jerome Sinsky, Deborah F. and Dan Winkleman. Thank you very much to you all for um, choosing to support the podcast and welcome to the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Let's um, read some of the messages that I've received this week. Um, one of the History of the World podcast Illuminati members, Dan Winkleman, has put, I'm really enjoying your podcast during my long walks to deal with the pandemic. I especially like the prehistory episodes and really uh, learned a lot. The one thing that I felt you missed was man's relationship with dogs and cats. For dogs, they would have hung around the camp for scraps, but had excellent hearing to warn of predators. For cats, they could protect grain store from mice. The main point is that it was a win-win relationship. Well, um, yes, I agree, Dan. Um, yes, it, it had to be a win-win relationship for it to happen in such an organic fashion. Um, but then also, I think the, the other thing, I mean, particularly with dogs, I, I don't know too much about the history of cat domestication. I know that there is evidence of it um, taking place during the Neolithic um, certainly I think excavations were made on Cyprus to um, allude to there being a domestic variety of cats accompanying humans there uh, but certainly with dogs um, there is this very popular image of dogs being um, around the camp searching for scraps of food and, and men and dogs suddenly forging a relationship but then also I consider the fact that um, during this time, uh, humans would have become a lot more, um, possibly become a lot more pastorally, uh, pastorally inclined. So they would have been herding animals, herding wild animals. And I think dogs would have played quite an important part in tracking animals. And so the human that could have exploited that would have 
would have gained great advantage. So it ne didn't necessarily have to be a relationship that took place within the human camp. It might have took place just because there was a common cause in the wild, in the open wild. So um, who knows, really? Um, we can discuss it and speculate. And once again, that's another beautiful aspect of history is that we can speculate about it. I'd love to talk to an expert, someone who's studied that that closely i'm sure there's going to be someone out there uh, that could enlighten me i'm just going to um, say a special thank you to melanie paul mary who has um written in she she actually um wrote a nice review on Castbox for the podcast which i think i read out maybe a couple of weeks ago and um she's uh, suggested about um potentially translating the podcast into french uh which sounds like a very ambitious project but um you know i i don't know what the the practical possibilities of that are and uh, maybe it's something we can explore it's certainly not something that's in the immediate pipelines but very interesting to think about that the history of the world podcast translated into other languages what a fantastic idea Mike Maddox has written in saying, Chris just started on the series and I really enjoy it. Thank you, Mike. Well, thank you, Mike, for writing in. Um, another message from Nina Clark has put, Dear Chris, I've just finished listening to Volume 2, Episode 12 of your podcast. I'm a Brit living in France and I'm also listening to the French, uh, the French History Podcast by Gary Girod in English for obvious reasons, which I can recommend. Uh, thank you so much for making this podcast. It is exactly what I'm looking for. And when I search for the History of the World podcast in my podcast app, I too have come to like history later in life through reading historical fiction. Hence the need I felt for a background timeline. I listened to one podcast a day while having breakfast and in this way spent a very pleasant half hour to the start of the day. I really haven't got any uh, constructive criticism for you as I love it all. The material, your delivery, the maps, etc, etc. Thank you again. Uh, thank you very much. A lovely message, Nina. Thank you. And um, I've not had the pleasure of listening to the History of France podcast, the uh, History of French History, uh, the, the French History podcast. Let's get it right. Goodness me. By Gary Girod in English. I've not had the pleasure, so maybe that's one I could give a try to. And then I've, I've also uh, received a message from Adam Cote, who um, I'm not going to read the whole message out because it, it's, quite, it's quite long, so I don't want to read the entire thing out. But he's just put, um, since I'm only on episode 17 of volume one, which was recorded years ago, I'm not sure if you still like receiving feedback or, or you have such a fan club since that it's more of a burden now. I don't really have a, a fan club um, of any considerable size that it's uh makes it hard work for me to reply to everyone let me let me assure you of that um but um adam has written some very very um complimentary um things in in this uh email so thank you adam but thanks a lot for your work and for making gardening so much more enjoyable for me well, there you go. So we've got someone who listens to the History of the World podcast during breakfast and someone else who listens to the History of the World podcast while making gardens. So uh, thank you. Um, and um, I hope you continue to enjoy the project for many, many 
more months to come. Let's uh, listen to some um, reviews now. Um, always enjoy reading the reviews, always good fun. Uh, the first one is from Jay Bratz of the United States of America, who's put, this is the one in capital letters. Um, if you haven't given this pod a listen and you enjoy it or are interested in world history, this is the one. Chris's ideal presentation of his research will allow you to sponge his findings. Chris has a humility and humanity that makes me believe he's a super good dude on top of it. Give a listen. You'll definitely enjoy it. Cheers. I've just realised that my English accent just makes me sound like I'm being sarcastic the whole time, doesn't it? I apologise for that. Uh, Brad Podcast from Australia has put 10 stars and then has given me a five-star review, which I guess I am... I guess you can't put more than five stars, but he'd like to. And he's put, it's so good. And that's his review. So uh, let's put it in a nutshell. I, I, I quite like that. Um, Leicester Square from Great Britain has put, history of the world, bloody brilliant. I'm learning so much, Chris. Thank you. And um, finally, we've got Ted Turner from Great Britain. He's put, awesome. Great and ambitious podcast, which begins all the way back to the time of the proto-hominids and aims to reach the present day. I'm currently still in the ancient times, but I see myself getting all the way to the end. Well, let's hope we all make it all the way to the end. It's a long journey, and um, I'd like to get to the end of that journey, and I'd like to uh, bring you all with me. I can assure you of that. Well, anyway, that's it for this week. Um, I've forgotten what I'm doing next week. I think... I think we're carrying on with the chronology, if I'm not mistaken. So we're going into the year of the four emperors initially before we carry on into the end of the first century and into the second century with the story of the Roman Empire. So be sure to to, uh, tune in again next week. And until then, have a fantastic and safe week and be good, everyone. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us